All right, I've been told I need to finish by seven o'clock uh, because Nancy has to leave. Uh, so uh, I want to be sure that I cover this incredibly important chapter in the scripture and enough time for Nancy to get it all. Uh, I realized last week that I shortchanged you a little bit on the introduction, that there are some fun things about Isaiah that... Uh, are just worth knowing about. And by the way, if you are in the room, uh, Gary printed out the Isaiah cartoon that uh, very helpful. If you're watching online, about he's on. about to put the link to it in the chat room so that you guys can print it out uh, and have the, the same thing. We're not going to refer much to it. Um, Almost always when Isaiah is uh, uh, discussed, it's discussed in, in pieces. And if you do the video that goes with the Bible Project uh, cartoon, it'll have the first part of Isaiah 1 through 39, and then it'll have a second video for uh, chapters 40 through 66. And so even the, the Bible project, it's just too long a prophecy for, uh, for anybody to, to see it as just one, uh, one thing. I'm going to talk in a minute about the structure, but I, I remind all of us that we are in a series that leads into our Advent series. So our first three studies in Isaiah are sort of a prequel to the, um, the prophecies about the coming Messiah that are also in Isaiah. So we're doing a kind of a, a, a big picture view of Isaiah for three weeks, the glory of God, the greatness of God, and our gratitude towards God. And then we will get into the prophecies that Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah uh, for unto us a child is born, and so forth. So we're kind of hopping around in Isaiah. We're not uh, going sequentially. Last week, I, I, I did the, the intro part that got us through the first six uh, chapters, but uh, we're going to hop over to the first chapter in the second part of the book, which is Isaiah chapter 40. So just a reminder the series before this one, we talked a lot about the contrast between the things that culture tells us and the things the Bible tells us. We called it ancient truths for modern lives. Isaiah is kind of all of that on hyperdrive because he is trying to tell us about the corruption in the culture, but his uh, his his answer to that is not so much wisdom like the wisdom books. He is giving us a warning of God's judgment, and his his uh, uh, in the first thirty nine chapters, especially, it's it's not always a kind judgment. It's a it's a, a stern warning about what will happen uh, if the current course is not corrected. Now, uh, just a word about the timeline. 
said last week that Isaiah's prophecy starts uh, around 740 or so BC. You remember the numbers go backwards. So the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians in 722. So Isaiah prophesied while the troops were gathering, the Assyrian army was, was approaching, and his prophecy straddles the time that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And then 150 years later, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. So this timeline, obviously he did not uh, live through both of those uh, conquests, but uh, the part of the book that we are in now uh, is very much a warning about Babylon. So uh, when we use the words predictive prophecy, we're talking about Isaiah writing as if something has already come to pass, even though its fulfillment will be in the future. And you may remember that we said there's that the word prophecy is not so much future telling, but truth telling. And so when Isaiah utters a judgment, it may refer to the immediate future. It may refer to the near future, or it may refer to the far future. But it is truth-telling about what God is doing. Um, Isn't there sometimes a both-and? Often there's a both-and. When we get to um, the promise of a child, uh, Isaiah specifically says that he went into the prophetess's wife, and she conceived and had a child. And so the, the child was the fulfillment of a near prophecy but also the, uh, the prediction is uh, applied to the birth of Christ as well. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so the, the, the prophecy is both a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment. And that's not uncommon in the scripture. When we try to, to take apart prophecy, we, we do the best we can. And we are grateful that we can look in hindsight and see it looking back. Uh, but as um, as we're going through Isaiah, just remember that sometimes a prophecy is immediate or near or far, and sometimes it's a combination of at least two, if not all three. So last week we talked about Isaiah being confronted with the glory of God. And one of the things I said uh, Sunday was that if there's any real takeaway for us in, in kind of looking back to last week, it's that Isaiah understood that God wasn't trying to be our best friend. He's not trying to be our buddy. He's not trying to be our pen pal or our Man, Facebook there. friend. He is God. He is terrifying. He is holy and and sometimes we're so quick to say that, that the fear of the Lord is reverence. It's not terror. Well, it's terror as well. 
And the reason it's terror is that Isaiah realized he didn't have any business standing before it. And if there's a takeaway from last week, that was it for me. I realized that week after week after week, I've got no business standing before him. I've got no business speaking for him. That all that we can be is because symbolically he takes a coal and puts it on our lips and declares us clean, declares us forgiven, declares us worthy. And so we we have no worth of our own. It is only when God intervenes. And, and, and that's why the messianic prophecy, that's why uh, chapter 53, the suffering servant, the one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's why the, the, the Isaiah's prophecy, especially in this, this latter section, is pointing to Messiah, who will have to do for us what the seraphim did with the coal for Isaiah. So a couple of um, things that I, I forgot about last week. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us how Isaiah died. That, that doesn't even really tell us when he died. There are a lot of context clues, and then there are a lot of uh, historical traditions, you know, that uh, the, Peter was crucified upside down. That, that's not in the scripture. It's implied in the scripture, but it's not, it's not specifically said, but, but historical tradition suggests that that's what happened. Well, Isaiah, his death is never detailed in the scripture. Um, we know that he made it through the Assyrian king Sennacherib because he writes about him. And Sennacherib was around in 680, 681 BC. So remember times going backwards. So 722, the Assyrians uh, conquer the northern kingdom. 587, the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom. 681 was the, he writes about the downfall of that king. And that king coexisted with Hezekiah, who was the uh, the uh, king of Judah at the time. And so um, we know that he made it that long. We think, because once again, tradition fills it in, historical narrative says that Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son, was the one who had uh, Isaiah executed. Um, so sometime after 681, King Manasseh reigned 695 to 642. So sometime in his reign, we believe that Isaiah was executed. Now, I don't want to get gory. I, I hope you've all had dinner. Um, you know the verse in Hebrews when it's talking about people of faith, and it says some were sown into the skins of animals, and some were sawn into. Uh, it is believed that Isaiah was who they're talking about for uh, being sawn into. Uh, the, the history, the legend, the tradition is that he was um, um, put in a tree um, and uh, the tree was sawn in half with him in it. Um, 
Hebrews 11.37 is the verse that implies that when it's talking about the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. All right, quickly, a few key ideas from last week. God is offended by religious practices that are from an empty heart. One of the things we said last week was that God is not interested in half-hearted uh, consecration. Um, the passage in Revelation about the church at Laodicea, if you're, if you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, he, he's not interested in that. Two, the foolish idols that man creates are destined for destruction. We're going to read some more about some idol makers tonight in chapter 40. Three, the only hope of the world is in one man, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Only hope. We can't build it. We can't manufacture it. We can't create it. Um, or God uses everything, even human sin, for his own glory. Um, Isaiah said, I'm a, a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He was speaking of his own sinfulness, and God used that to redeem it and then send him out. Who will go for me? And we're going to see a little bit more of that today as God challenges uh, the people who understand his message to be vocal about it. Uh, uh, actually, the word gospel is used, uh, the Hebrew form of it in our chapter tonight. Uh, five, uh, often when people feel abandoned by God, they foolishly trust in worldly things. And tonight, uh, God gives a little speech to uh, warn us from trusting in uh, worldly things. All right, a quick word about the organization of Isaiah. I uh, didn't get a chance to, didn't you have time to really deal with this last week? A lot of people say that Isaiah is clearly at least two sections, 1 through 39 and 40 through 66. Most modern scholars say that there's an additional break between chapter 55 and 56 so that the three units of Isaiah are chapters 1 through 39 chapters 40 through 55, and chapters 56 through 66. Now, let me blow your mind and read something that I read today. Nancy, you're going to just explode. <laughs> the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. It's divided into 39 chapters and 27 chapters. The Old Testament has 39 chapters, 39 books. The New Testament has 27. Some have suggested that this two-part prophecy arrangement is intentional. I think it's coincidental and really, really cool. Uh, I, I think that it's clear that Isaiah is a special prophecy. Uh, I, I think it's clear that that all of the, the roads that travel through Isaiah point to Jesus. I, I think it's very clear. Uh, I think it's just interesting uh, to make those two comparisons. Um, one person said that the first section is prophetic with a theme of condemnation. 
the second chapter, the second section is historic uh, with a theme of confiscation or confession. And the third chapter, the third section is messianic and the theme is consolation. Um, another person said that the first section is the book of the king. The second section is the book of the servant. And the third section is the book of the anointed conqueror. So all that to say that I, I, I find it uh, to have some integrity to say that there are three distinct movements in Isaiah and that especially beginning with the chapter that we're in tonight and moving forward, that there is a lot of predictive prophecy because he speaks a lot about Babylon. All right. Any thoughts or questions? Does your uh, Bible have any other suggestions that might be fun? All right. Now, I did observe one other thing that, that I, I'll just say by way of introduction. Isaiah doesn't, it doesn't settle neatly into sections. There, there is a, a also a pattern of, um, of cycles. So he'll talk about judgment and he'll talk about consequences, but then he'll talk about hope and redemption. Chapter six, uh, there, there's, there's judgment for the people. There's, there's, there's death that's deserved, the wrath of God. But then he, he describes a seraphim with a, a coal from the, the altar of sacrifice that provided a, a redemptive kind of, so, so Isaiah kind of circles back. We, it, it doesn't say that he's going to get all the judgment out of the way in 39 chapters, and now he's going to speak about hope, and then he's going to speak about the future coming of the king. He, he's going to go kind of in cycles throughout the book, so don't be alarmed or confused if you say, well, wait a minute, I, I thought he'd already pronounced redemption, and now here he is back at judgment. Uh, you're going to see cycles of that, as as was the case in most prophecy. You remember the cycle of the judges. It's uh, uh, the, the the sin, the cry out to God, the deliverance, the uh, peace, the sin, the deliverance, and it's a cycle, and and that's not uncommon here either. All right. So, chapter forty. There's no doubt that the first 39 chapters have passages of hope and uh, forgiveness, but this tone shifts with the very first word of chapter 40 uh, to tell us that it is uh, much more of an announcement of hope. What's the first word of chapter 40? Comfort. Comfort. Now I got you singing Messiah in your head, comfort ye my people. Um, a lot of Messiah comes from chapter 40 in Isaiah, Handel's Messiah. And so he says, comfort, comfort. Remember what when he repeats it, it's a uh the uh, repeating it twice is a is and as emphasis, repeating it three times would be a superlative. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Uh, holy of holies. Now he says comfort, comfort. And so he's 
he's moving out of uh, a section where it's a lot about the condition of the culture and the deserved judgment. And now he's going to talk about what God himself is going to do about that judgment. Um, chapter 39, if you look at just the last couple of verses, that's where he tells us that Babylon is coming. Now, remember the timeline. We're, we're 150 years away from when Babylon conquered uh, the southern kingdom. But he says, and some of your own sons who will come from you, they shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Should make us think of the book of Daniel and how that was a fulfillment of this type of prophecy, even though it was a far fulfillment. Uh, I don't know about being made eunuchs in the palace, but I am sure uh, that was part of it. Certainly anybody who uh, was anywhere near the queen would be uh, made a eunuch uh, because the bloodline of the queen was always to be protected. So anyway, uh, that's just a little tidbit that tells us that we have now introduced Babylon as another enemy. And now he is speaking perhaps about the comfort that the exiles will receive when this conquest has taken place. So if we're trying to make a timeline work, it's quite possible that Isaiah is now talking about the comfort that the exiles will receive. If you uh, see the uh, the cartoon, uh, the, the big exile that's running down the middle of it, that kind of separates the, the two parts of the, the story. And so the exile is widely considered to uh, have taken place between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Now, again, let me make sure you're listening. Did the exile actually take place between chapter 39 and chapter 40? Only if you believe that Isaiah wasn't written by just one person. You'd have to believe that there was a later author who added to the Isaiah scroll after Isaiah finished with it in chapter 39. And, and most of us who are conservative scholars don't believe that. We believe that if you insist on a later authorship, you're dismissing God's ability to do predictive prophecy. You're, you're dismissing his idea, uh, and, and, and that makes us throw revelation into question. And so we, we ha have held on to one author for Isaiah because we believe in God's uh, predictive prophecy for his uh, messengers. Um, all right, so the tone shifts. Comfort my people, says your God. Now, there's a, a contrast immediately that sets up the audience for this. You see the contrast? My people, your God. So he, he nails the relationship right away. This is not a, a distant, it's, uh, it uses the word Elohim here, but it's, uh, it's that the transcendent has come close. 
the 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 holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty. He has invited us into the story, and so He says, "My people, your God." Now He says, "Speak tenderly to Jerusalem." The the following chapters are going to go back to the majesty of God. The, the theme of this week is the greatness of God, but we have moved out of the throne room, and now, and now the people need him all the more. They're in exile. They are hurting. They're, they're questioning whether he's forgotten. And so this, this rings real close to us, where we have those, those times when our anxiety, our fear, our our depression starts to creep in, and we wonder if God has forgotten us. Well, the exile is 70 years of that. And so it's it's so remarkable to think that Isaiah is writing this 150 years before they are carried off into exile, and I guess 70 more years, 220 years before they return and experience the comfort that he's writing. So it it is it is not to be taken lightly how incredible it is what God has done here. So the the basic structure of the first eleven verses here, he wants to proclaim comfort to Jerusalem. It's okay. It's going to be okay. First two verses speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. Her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That could mean either she's received all that she needs to endure for her sin, or it could mean she's received double grace in redemption for her sins. That makes more sense to me because he's pronouncing good news. He's not back into wrath right now. And so it makes more sense to me that he's saying, I want to comfort Jerusalem. I want to draw her towards me. I want her to know that all of the hardships that she has, has gone through, the exile, the, the killing of men and women and children, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, but the things that have caused her pain, now I want her to be comforted because God has not forgotten her. And so when you say she's received double for her sins, the scholars are, are sort of split on whether that's a punitive kind of, she, she, she received even more than she deserved. Well, she deserved death, right? She deserved everything she got. And so I, I tend to look at it to say she's receiving double grace. He's receiving her, her iniquity has been pardoned. Her, her warfare has ended. The Lord's hand has reached out to her and, um, and extended grace. So the next section is to announce God's coming, right? Who do we usually associate chapter 40, verse 3 with? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. So here we are, a, a near prophecy and a far prophecy. Uh, the voice immediately was Isaiah. He's a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway for God. 
And then back to Handel's Messiah. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places of plain. Um, I, I don't notice it as much in Atlanta as I did in New Orleans. But we hated it when some political dignitary was coming to town. Because they close all the interstates. They make sure his little motorcade doesn't have any traffic like the rest of us. They go through every red light. If they know his route, they're going to pave the potholes. <laughs> Try to pretend like we don't drive in that nonsense all the time. Well, that's the language here. We're, we're going to prepare a highway for the king. We're going to prepare so that he, he has direct access. The uneven ground will become level. The rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So, so we are told now that the glorious Lord whose train of his robe filled the temple. Now he's coming to us. Now he's, he's descending to us. He's, he's leaving the Holy of Holies and he's coming to us. What does the word Emmanuel mean? God with, us. God with us. And so he, she shall be great with child and the child will be called Emmanuel. So God is coming to us. This is a, a herald who's announcing the coming king. All flesh will see it and the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And then he, he speaks uh, about the word of the Lord. Um, God's dependability, God's faithfulness. And it says, a voice says, cry. All eyes, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. And so early on, Logos, the the, the the word of the Lord that will stand forever. It's no accident that later on Jesus is called the word. The word of God will stand forever. What, what is this pointing us to? The prophecy, the king is coming. He's left the throne room. He's uh, prepared his way. And his way is going to be to leave us the word forever and ever. So that kind of gets into the section that I'm going to deal with uh, on Sunday. Um, chapters 40 verses 9 through 11, they introduce the idea of the greatness of God. That's probably even a subhead on your uh, Bible. It probably says the, the, the greatness of God. Is that a subheading for most of you? Yeah. And so chapter 40 verse 9, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Do you remember the, the Greek word for evangelism, euangelion, which is, uh, it's translated good news. And so this is a, a gospel leaning forward. The word is going to last forever, and we need you to tell people about it. So be a herald of good news, uh, an evangelist would translate. And then there are a lot of uh, imperatives that speak of uh, of, of speaking, right? That, that, that talk about go up in a high mountain, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, 
What would be a shorter word for that? Shout. <laughs> Shout. It's in a whisper. Shout the good news. Oh, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The name of the series right here. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with his might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense before him. I, I, I sort of built a little bracket between 10 and 11 because 11 just doesn't fit. We've got this mighty God. We're shouting about him. And all of a sudden, we've got a tender shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them close Gently lead the young. I will uh, try to explain why I think that is on Sunday. So you got to come back. Um, it's uh, I, I I think that uh, that Isaiah had one of his cycle thoughts. I, I think he's 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 talking to us about the greatness of God and we're how how we shout his his good news and we we're on a high mountain and we're. We're just shouting the good news. And then he says, don't forget that he comforts you. Don't forget that that's what this is about. He will be to you as a shepherd, a good shepherd. So then beginning in verse 12. I will say on Sunday, this is really what drew me to this passage. I'm intrigued with the the. Back and forth in Job. Remember when we studied Job and and I, and I said that 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 I can picture me in that conversation that I'm I'm telling God all my good ideas and all my explanations about the bad decisions I've made and and excuses for my sin, and then finally God says enough. Now I'm going to speak and you're going to listen. And this very much has that shape to it. Beginning in verse 12, there are a series of rhetorical questions where God is speaking through the prophet, but he's trying to remind us that, that the comfort we can feel is based on his greatness. That, that uh, when when we plead our, plead our case before a judge, we want to make sure that he has the authority to make the decision. I don't know if any of you have ever had any experience in courthouses. Uh, I don't want to know. Uh, but I will tell you that I have. And uh, there's always this conversation that you have to have with the DA before you get to stand in front of the judge. And, I, and I'm always wanting to go, why am I talking to you? Do, you? do you have the authority to make this decision? Do you have the authority to make promises? Do you have the authority to forgive? Do you have the authority to pronounce sentence? And, and God is making sure that the people who are going to receive comfort know that he has the authority to give, that he is the good shepherd. But make no mistake, he is God. He is great. He is holy. He is separate. He is... Uh, just awesome. And so everybody take your hand and cup it like this. 
on Sunday, we're going to have communion. And my guess is that if you poured the contents of the communion cup into that little space in your hand, it'd probably overflow. That, that doesn't hold much, does it? An ounce, less? Well, the scripture says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So now I've got a picture of the God of the universe and all of the oceans, all of the rivers, all of the lakes, all of the puddles, all of the dispenser in your refrigerator, all of the water of all of the earth is in the hollow of his hand. My mind is blown. Because this is the prophet's attempt at helping us understand the greatness of God. And he's quick to say that he doesn't even do it. So he gives us another one. Not only has he measured the waters, he's marked off the heavens with a span. You know what a span is? Distance between your little finger and your thumb. On Sunday, I geeked out a little bit. You won't want to miss it because I I spent a lot of time on the slides uh, because they released a lot of the pictures from the new web telescope. And whenever I'm reading that God has marked off the universe with a span, and now we have a telescope that can show us endless galaxies. Uh, so I... I probably spent a lot more time looking up pictures than I should have, but you're going to get them on Sunday. He has marked the universe with a span. Um, that makes me think of those pictures that were in the letter from Alan T. Yeah, those were from the Webb Telescope. I'll show those uh, on Sunday as well. the The one that looks like fingers is called the Pillars of Creation, and uh, it's it's just stunning. But we can't really picture the enormity of it. But let me just say this. If the sun was the size of a basketball and our solar system was scaled to that, we've taken Pluto out of the solar system. It's not allowed to be a planet anymore. So the last one in the line is Neptune. If the sun was the size of a basketball and it was in this room, do you know where Neptune would be? It would be on the other side of I-285. It'd be about two and a half miles away. That's just our solar system. And that's if you reduce that giant fireball that we look at every day to the size of a basketball, then Neptune would be two and a half miles away if it was in scale. And, and, and you, we could go on and on about the enormity of the universe God has marked it out of space. He's enclosed the dust of the earth. I think that's just sarcasm, actually. I mean, how many of you have any success of getting a hold of the dust in your house? Let alone enclosing all the dust of the earth. <laughs> He's weighed the mountains. He's measured the hills. And then he asks another rhetorical question in 13. Who has measured the spirit of God? 
So he moves from majesty to wisdom. He said, not only is he a creator, he's wise. He knows what to do with his creation. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man can show him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? Not only has God creative, but he's sovereign and wise. And Isaiah is just, it's almost like halftime where he's going, let's do a little gut check here. We, we've been talking about how great God is, but I don't want you to get it out of his out of your mind what I'm talking about here. He is magnificent. Then he says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are counted as dust. He, you know, we 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 want to approach God. We want him to be our buddy. We want to tell him how to make our prayers happen. We want to create him in our own image. Isaiah is not having it. He is not having it at all. All the nations, verse 17, are as nothing before him. They are counted as less than nothing and emptiness. There's the word vanity again, a vapor. The nations are like a vapor. Um, verse 21, uh, do you not know? Have you not heard? That's a that's a phrase that's repeated uh, pretty often in Isaiah twice in this section. Uh, it's, it's again rhetorical. It's almost as, as Job uh, heard from God, uh, why don't I talk and you listen? Gird up your loins like a man and, and, and just listen. Uh, the voice of God thunders. Uh, verse 22. I read it several times before I caught it. Anybody? When was this written? How did he know the earth was round? This is 700 years before Christ. Galileo, distant future. How did Isaiah know the earth was a circle? I mean, he could have measured it against what he's the shadow of the moon. That's how a lot did. Really? Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the shadow of the moon, it's round. A round shape makes that. But you start with that presupposition. He wouldn't have known what to make of it. He knew the, the sun looked round in the sky, but <laughs> All he could see of the earth was that it was flat. And yet in 22, he said, it sits above the circle of the earth. That blew my mind. Well, it's kind of like if he looks at the moon and the sun and their circles. You know, okay, but we know that through the Middle Ages, they thought the earth was flat. Yeah, they, did. they were pretty sure that when they sailed west across the Atlantic Ocean, they were going to fall off the edge. Hey, my what, mind. What is perfect. that? Go ahead, Emily. What is the say. word in? I would love to know the translation. The word in Greek, whether it refers to a circle. Um, or, I will look it up. It yeah, right Hebrew, but, okay, Gary has has got it right here. My Bible says it's a circle or a zenith. A circle or a zenith. Yeah, I mean it's consistent. How did, a circle? How did Moses? 
That's exactly right. This is God has given him instructions, but I just I, I'm fascinated by these little tidbits that we find I in the scripture. Too, Alan. God wanted him. Well, yeah, he wanted us to know it. He yes. wanted us to wonder. Um, well, and so now, the, he, he didn't say sphere, though, so it could be a flat circle, right? So, Like a two-dimensional circle. It could be. I mean, it, if it said sphere, then, he, then you'd really have something. Well, that's true. Alan, I like your idea. I don't care how much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rich is good at that. He's just, he needs to explain it. That's what they do. All right. So, verse 25, we'll wrap it up. Now he says, he gets personal. He says, to whom will you compare me? That I should be like him. Remember in uh, chapter six, he said, "Don't the, the, don't don't pay attention to the men who breathe. Don't 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 worship humans who breathe." He says, "I I will not be compared to anyone. Lift up your eyes eyes and see who created these." He brings out their host by number. He calls them by name. By the greatness of his mind, he is strong in power. Interesting, not one is missing. He brings out their hopes, none of them are missing. So what do you say, O Jacob? What do you say, Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God. And this is the part you're all familiar with. I'm not going to deal with this tonight or on Sunday, because what he does here is he shifts back to humans. Uh, the greatness of God gives way to the way he will provide. He said, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is like a recap, a summary. And now he shifts it to what he does. Again, the cycle, he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men will be exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. He's predicting the strength and comfort that he will give them in the exile. I love him. But we can't ever lose sight of the fact that he bases it all on the ability to do so, on the greatness of God. And if we can't, Camp on that for just a little bit. If we if we're too rushed to God, will you hear my prayers? God, will you bless mom? God, will you help us with our finances? God, will you cure me of my anxiety? If we, God, will you send your son? God, will you save my son? God, will you save my neighbor? If we if we go too quickly to that, then we are almost reducing God again to an ATM. And we forget that we we may be a thousand years of silence before we could say a word and ask him anything if we were truly before him. And we can't lose sight of the glory of God from Isaiah 6 and certainly the greatness of God from Isaiah 40. All right. I told Nancy I'd finish before she had to leave. 
Any questions, comments? Does your study Bible give us some more help? All right. Well, I will see you guys on Sunday. Make sure you're here so you can see all my pictures. <laughs> Thanks, Al.